last week we started looking at uh, the book of Acts, and we'll have a few weeks together we can journey through this book. We won't look at every chapter, uh, but we'll look at about eight or nine selections in the book of Acts. And so logically, last week we began uh, in Acts chapter 1, and we saw a couple things if you were here. Uh, we saw, first, there's this great authenticity to the Christian faith, that the book of Acts is a historical document. Uh, it features plenty of miracle, plenty of supernatural, which we'll get to more and more. We see it here in this text tonight. But it's also a, a, a text of sort of bedrock uh, historicity, that there is uh, this realization that we must wrestle with the historical claims of the book of Acts. And it's one of our our best documents for establishing really the authenticity of the Christian faith. Uh, but we moved past that and also realized that in chapter 1 we see the authority of God over his church. So we have the authenticity of the Christian faith, the authority of God over his church. But then we also saw in the ending of chapter 1 uh, the ascension of Christ Jesus. That oftentimes as Christians we speak of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but we oftentimes forget the ascension of Christ, that in the ascension of Jesus to heaven, uh, he is crowned. He is taking his seat on the throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, of the majesty on high. And so at the end of chapter one, we saw the ascension of Christ uh, for our good. And here now in chapter two, what we see is that we see this ascended Jesus. We see King Jesus, if you will, uh, beginning now to give gifts to his church beginning to give gifts to men. If you're familiar with the passage in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it actually says, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. What you see here is you see this now coming to life. You see the ascended Christ, King Jesus, the victorious king, now as that victorious king, sort of doling out the spoils of war doling out the spoils that he has won in his victory over sin and over death. We talk a lot here at Coral Ridge about the gospel being this announcement, this declaration of good news. And there's good grounding for that. The gospel writers, when they're writing their gospels, they're doing just that very same thing. They are announcing something. They're declaring that a king, not Caesar, not one of the Romans, but the king of kings has actually won a decisive victory in battle. The victory over sin and over death. And now there are heralds who have gone forth to, to announce this good news. And so this victorious king now, because he's won the battle, he sits on his throne, the ascended Jesus, and he's now giving gifts to men. He's giving gifts to his church. This is the first gift he gives, if you were following in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, he gives the first gift to his church, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And what we notice, though, here, sort of amazingly, is the gift that he's giving, this king, they're all grounded in Old Testament history and Old Testament timetable. It says when the day of Pentecost came, this king now did something. And all these things that we'll see in the book of Acts, it'll oftentimes reference these Old Testament like uh, timetables. Okay? And the reason is because we want to begin to see that all of Scripture is one continuous story. That the story of our salvation did indeed begin in Genesis, go through all the Old Testament, and now finds its culmination in the person and work of Christ and in 
the early church. And so all these magnificent things that are going to happen are grounded in these Old Testament timetables. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, these things now happened. And think about that. Think about how God, in Jesus, is redefining people's imaginations of what they'd expected. He's fulfilling his promise to save not just Israel, but all of humanity. So think now with me for a second. Think about when was Christ crucified? Passover, right? He was crucified in the Passover. We know in Israelite history, what was the Passover? It was a time when they left Egypt, but prior to leaving, right, the night of leaving, what do they do? They obey God. They sacrifice a lamb. They take that lamb's blood. They paint it over the door. And when the angel of God sees that blood over the door, he will pass over their sins and they'll be saved. We know from scripture that at Passover now, the greater lamb, Christ Jesus, is sacrificed. And his blood covers you, covers me, so that when God now looks down, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the blood of Christ, and he passes over. And so at Passover, the lamb of God is slain. But now here at Pentecost, this king, that slain but risen king, on the day of Pentecost now, gives gifts. What is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost is just the Greek kind of word, the Greek name for the Hebrew festival, the Feast of Weeks. Okay? So if you were to, if you were to take your Bible and go to like the book of Leviticus, you don't have to do that now, go to Leviticus and read about all the holy days and festivals, things like that. Well, the Feast of Weeks, it was literally, it was 50 days, okay, beyond Passover. So about seven weeks or seven Sabbaths, Okay, plus a day, 50 days, okay, the Feast of Weeks, Penta, meaning kind of 50, okay, so 50 days, all right, uh, after Passover, you have this other holiday, okay, and it's at that moment that this King Jesus will choose to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that we kind of see here in Acts chapter 2 is we think about the King. So last week we talked about Christ ascending to the throne, now we're thinking about his reign as king, The first thing that we kind of see here is that Jesus, the risen Jesus, the ascended Jesus, is a generous king. He's a generous king who's giving gifts to his people. But if we keep reading, we also see that this king, Jesus, is an indiscriminate king. He's a welcoming king. Look at verse 4 if you have a Bible. It says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and was bewildered, because each person was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, our own native language? Uh, in chapter 1, last week we talked about this, uh, we see that Christ sort of burst the disciples' bubble. If you were to look back in, in chapter 1, after Christ resurrects, his disciples come to him and they ask him, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And if you recall, Christ kind of pulls the rug out from underneath them and reminds them it's not their business to know the things of God, but that in his time he'll restore the kingdom. But he challenges them that their view of his kingdom was too small. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Christ is, is trying to teach them and show them that his kingdom goes well beyond Israel. It goes to 
the four corners of the globe. And we begin to see that now come to life. We begin to see that now uh, enacted here in the fact that there are these multiple languages being spoken. And the gift of the Holy Spirit comes and is accessible to every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, the announcement of his coming kingdom was too big to restrict to just one language. Um, if you are like me and buy very cheap furniture, then you'll know that they always come with instructions. Right? If you buy like good handcrafted furniture, you're not putting it together, typically, right? Uh, but I buy furniture that needs to be put together. And always put together with one of those, I think it's like an Allen wrench. It, like, it looks like a letter L. And it's not a screwdriver. It's the most annoying thing in the world. Because it always strips and it never fits in the hole. And it's just, it's a nightmare. Um, but you, one, thing that, one thing that the company IKEA does that's amazing is that, uh, you may have noticed if you buy IKEA furniture, okay, they give their instructions in pictures. I love that. It's tremendous, right? Because usually you get like an instruction manual for furniture and you gotta go through, there's like 27 languages, right? Because it's an international company, they wanna ship it around the world. You gotta, where's English? Where is it? I can't, you know, I can't find it. Uh, well, IKEA kind of bypassed all of that and they make a pictorial you know, uh, manual and it's brilliant. Any language can access this. Uh, you know, there's no, just it's a picture, okay? Uh, and it's beautiful because it's open to all. There's no hurdles that have to be overcome to understand it. Well, in a, in a strange way, that's what's happening here at Pentecost, okay? If this, was, if this was announced, if the coming of the Spirit was given in one specific language, then it could be concluded that that one specific language or, or tribe or nation had a monopoly. But we learn here in the coming of the Spirit that no nation, no people group, no ethnicity has a monopoly on the kingdom Christ, but that is open to all. It's open for all, and all are welcome by his grace. But we also see here that the Holy Spirit is very intentionally showing us that in the coming of Christ, the curse upon humanity is being turned around. The curse of sin is being broken. Think back also in your Bibles to the Old Testament. Think about Genesis 11. What do you have recorded there? You have the story of the Tower of Babel. That word literally, right, being taken, Babel. Confused languages. The curse upon humanity for their sin of wanting to be their own God and make a name for themselves was that God fractured them into languages. He judged them. He scattered them. He separated them. There was a barrier erected. And now we see here the fullness of time in God's salvation, what is he doing? He's not scattering, but he's gathering. He's bringing in. He's welcoming back fractured humanity under the banner of his son, under the banner of his finished work. But what's interesting, if you, if you noted, you would think if God is turning back the curse, if he's reversing Babel, if you will, then he would have maybe also like restored one universal language, right? You think in Genesis they all spoke the same language and then the, the curse comes and now there's different languages and there's you know, barriers to fellowship. You'd think here at Pentecost, maybe he would give him like a special you know, Holy Spirit language, Christianese, right? Uh, where we all now speak one tongue, but he doesn't. 
And I think it's helpful to, to realize that because what is, what is God doing here? He's working through our barriers. He's working through our fractures. He's working through the, the mechanisms of these languages that are already in place and bringing them all, bringing us all together under one roof, even if we can't speak the same sort of verbal language. Why? And I think the reason is because he wants to show the world, and Rob spoke about this on Sunday a few weeks ago, he wants to show the watching world that the church is the only place, really, the only place possible where people who are in conflict outside can find common ground and community inside. That God wants to show the watching world that in the kingdom of Christ, people who are at odds out there, people who have barriers erected between them out there, whether it be because of ethnicity or language or color of skin or neighborhood or demographic, that those same people find commonality, find community, find fellowship here in the kingdom, the church of Christ. And so Acts 2 is sort of laying out these things for us. We have this king who is on his throne. He's ascended. He's a, he's a generous king. He's a welcoming and he's an indiscriminate king. But we also find out here in this text that Jesus is a gracious king who desires that none should perish. He's a gracious king who desires that none should perish. Look, um, look at verse... 12. We're actually going to read a little bit past what we read in the beginning. Verse 12, it says, They all were amazed and perplexed. And they said to each other, What does this mean? So that they hear the languages, they see the miracle, they're, they're witnessing it, but they can't process it. And they go, What does this mean? Verse 13, But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, so this is now verse 14, Peter, who stood with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Um, I love how Peter starts that. They go, oh, they're filled with new wine. What does Peter say? They can't be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock. You know? I mean, that's hilarious to me. It's as if he's saying, if it was 5 o'clock, it would be a different story, right? Uh, if it was happy hour, you know, maybe we got something to work with here. But it's only 9 o'clock. They can't be drunk, right? Um, he goes, no, this is not, this is not you know, uh, inebriation. This is not excess consumption. What does Peter say? He says, this is eschatology. This is, what does that mean? This is the end time. This is the last days that we're living in, that you're seeing unfold in your midst, that all of human history 
that all of biblical history has been hurtling towards this day and the culmination of God's plan of redemption is being found here in Christ Jesus. And he says, this is the, these are the last days. And not in like a doomsday, you know, uh, supermarket tabloid, Nostradamus, you know, countdown clock kind of way. But Peter is saying, no, no, no. This is where all of history has been moving. And with the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, we've now climbed the hill of redemptive history and now it's all downhill, but in a good way. You know, like, it's all from here. I mean, this is now all coming to pass that we are living in the last days. And that, that's essentially why he then quotes from the prophet Joel, who kind of puts that for us very plainly. In the last days, these are the things that will happen. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And he goes on and on. But you might be asking yourself, well, I mean, how is this a sign of Jesus being gracious? What does this have to do with him not wanting people to perish? How do you get that from this, this passage? And I think what Peter's doing here is he's saying, think about God's expansion here. Think about his mercy Think about the gift that he's giving to his church here by pouring out his spirit on who? Who did the text say? On all people. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, your young men, your old men, your servants, every single person I will pour out my spirit upon. And you go, wow, what is God doing here? doing something amazing. Think about this. He's saying, I'm expanding the prophetic office. Now think about that for a second. In the Old Testament, who would have the spirit of the Lord upon them? It'd be the leaders. It'd be the prophets. It'd be the people kind of specially set apart. Okay? And now in the new covenant, when Christ comes, his spirit will now not just dwell in the leaders, not just come upon the special anointed ones, but he will come upon all people so that all people who trust the name of Christ can now prophesy, can witness. Not prophes- now, don't get mistaken. Not prophesy like in telling the future. We're not talking about that kind of prophecy. All people can prophesy in terms of being a witness, of declaring who God is, of declaring what God has done for them of giving the good news. And so he's saying, I'm enlisting now in my kingdom as many people as possible who can share the good news of my kingdom with others. And that's incredibly gracious on his part. You see, the reason he does this is because he's the king on the throne. And he wants as many witnesses, he wants as many evangelists as possible to tell of the good news of his kingdom, and to be a witness to what God has done. And the the reason, of course, the reason this is being ramped up in the last days is because now think about this for a second, and we'll kind of bring this to a close. So we have the prophets in the Old Testament who tell of what God has done, who tell of his works, who bring sometimes words of judgment even, okay? And they all come to the point in the New Testament of John the Baptist, the very last prophet of that old covenant, the Bible says. 
And what does John the Baptist do? He prepares the way for the Lord's first arrival, for his first coming. And the first arrival of Jesus is an arrival of grace. It's an arrival of mercy. It's an arrival of forgiveness, of of liberty, of setting free the captives. But when he comes again the second time, what is that arrival going to be one of? Of judgment. Of judgment. Where he comes and he gathers to himself those who have placed their trust in him. And he condemns those who have failed to trust in him, but who trust in themselves for salvation. And so you see now why the king is so gracious. He says, this is urgent. These are the last days we're living in. My kingdom is here in part, and it's coming in all of its fullness. And it's open to any who trust me, who trust what I've done. But there is coming a day of judgment for those who fail to trust in what I've done. And because he does not want that to happen, because he wishes that none should perish, he sends out into the world as many spirit-filled, spirit-anointed witnesses on his behalf to take that good news to people who are dying and who are lost and who might might not have even thought about judgment, but who can be told there's a judgment coming and yet God has made a way out through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you see here in in, in Acts 2, God is commissioning his church for their work in the world to be these heralds, to be these announcers, to be these evangelists on the behalf of Christ. And that's our job as well. That's our role as well. Think about what dignity that gives you. When we were dead, God raised us. When we were orphaned in our sin, he adopted us as his children. And now he actually gives us his spirit to be his witnesses and sends us out. What a privilege. But yet, what a weighty task as well. So the question, I think, for all of us tonight, the question for myself tonight is, are we walking in that faithfulness? Are we being his witnesses in the world and telling people about this great king who loves us, who died for us, and has given us a way out of the judgment because of his great mercy. And so I encourage you this week, I encourage myself as we go, um, is there somebody in your life who you can tell about Jesus? Is there somebody in your path who you can begin to, through the power of the Spirit, tell them about Jesus? Invite them to church. Tell them all that God has done for them.